Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Rudy, I don't, I don't even know. I know he was going to go to Ukraine and I think he canceled the trip. Uh, but, you know, Rudy has other clients other than me. I'm one. So you didn't you didn't direct him to go there on your behalf. You no, didn't. No, but no. But but you have to understand, Rudy is a great corruption fighter. This president only cares about the big stuff. And when he said, well, there's big stuff going on here. There's a war with Russia. So I'll explain no big stuff that helps him personally, like this Biden investigation that Giuliani wants. Some of you on this committee appear to believe that Russia and its security services did not conduct a campaign against our country, and that perhaps, somehow, for some reason, Ukraine did. This is a fictional narrative. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. So kids these days, they have it so tough with all this wall-to-wall digital madness, everyone on their iPhones, practically from birth, AirPods, Snapchat, TikTok, Twitter, and forget about the online bullying, right? Kids can be so cyber cruel, which is why it's good to see those sweet kids in Baltimore out in the fresh air, hearing an address from inspirational speaker Melania Trump of America's Camelot and engaging in some good old-fashioned offline bullying. Boo! It's the simple things, you know. Be thankful around the Thanksgiving repast that people in our great nation still greet each other face-to-face. And if for whatever reason they don't like someone for handmaidening the destruction of democracy while affecting indifference to children in cages, they boo the hell out of her. This is what the Mayflower had in mind. My guest today is Brian Boitler. He's kind of the Dwayne Johnson, the rock of political reporting and podcasting. Everyone loves him. And he's got an excellent heart and shrewd mind that actually work in concert, as those two things don't always do. He's the editor-in-chief of Crooked Media and host of the extraordinary podcast Rubicon about all things Trump impeachment. I am a compulsive listener to Rubicon, and I recommend it to all of you. I've wanted to have him on for a long time, and I'm very pleased to be able to talk to Brian today. Brian, welcome to Trumpcast. Thank you for having me. I don't know how it's taken me so long to have you on, but I'm going to give you a tall order today. Okay. I don't know anything about sports, but right now I'm just all using the sports metaphors. So I want you to be sweeper today and just like clean up this impeachment story, button it up so we can all go and eat some turkey um, while we brood on your closing statement about the hearing so far. Um, So uh, I guess we should start at the beginning of the hearings or do you want to just start from last Go ahead. I want to hear. I mean, there's some new reviews and we were just saying 50 percent of people and some little things have moved here and there. Republicans have moved around. So it's not like the hearings did nothing. Right. But it is still astounding that 50 percent of the people want Trump not just impeached, not just an impeachment hearing, not just to be compelled to have his people compelled to follow subpoenas, but simply removed from office. Let's just get him out of there. It has not happened in modern history that public polling has shown that more than half the country wants to remove a sitting president from office outside of the context of an election. It didn't happen for 
well, I guess it did happen for Nixon, thus he resigned. But since then, it, it, it did not happen for Clinton during his impeachment, for George W. Bush when there was some some clamor uh, among liberals to uh, impeach him. Mm-hmm. It never happened for Obama when conservatives on the right were pushing for his impeachment. But um, Donald Trump, it's it's what, 51 percent say they sh- that he should be removed. And in most polls, a higher percent want him to be impeached with people reserving judgment or deciding that, you know, th- they're not sure that they're at, at um, removal yet. So that's completely remarkable. I mean, it also, you know, we keep trying to take the mood of the nation about 2020. And I think the baseline thing is this is a very radical attitude. What, whoever the Absolutely. president is to want, you know, to take the president out of office, not just as a kind of comical, I wish he'd go away. I had that plenty with Clinton, but just let's just remove him from office come what may. I feel like the candidates, nobody is actually taking the pulse of the country, which feels like, you know, if it's not in a violent frame of mind, it's le- at least ready for regime change. I mean, it tells you a little bit about why things outside of the context of the impeachment process are happening the way they are, right? If you're a sitting president and a whole raft of polling shows that more than half the country wants you to be impeached and removed from office, uh, you're in a really, really desperate situation. And if you're if you're the, the party that's that's running the impeachment, all all your job is, um, apart from conducting yourselves in, in you know, some sort of a board above board way is yeah. to hold that 51% or 54% or whatever the number is together and not let it fracture right it it suggests a very high intensity of distaste for the sitting president and so making sure that that the reasons people don't like him remain front and center is absolutely critical to defeating him assuming he isn't removed and that also explains why uh Republican politics has uh, outside of the impeachment process has sort of devolved into various efforts to fracture uh, the Democratic coalition to try to recruit Mm -hmm. a a third party spoiler, et cetera. You can see the justification. I mean, you know, it's not rocket science and and you kind of expect parties to do stuff like that anyway. But you look at these the, the polling around impeachment and it becomes super obvious why Republicans are just desperate for Tulsi Gabbard or somebody else to mount a third party spoiler campaign, because without that, with with unity around whoever the Democratic nominee is, it's going to be very, very, very rough sailing for Republicans in the fall. I mean, and there is a reason to continue. I, I, you don't usually hang on the polls, but there is a reason to, to try to pay attention, at least in the purple states, because McConnell has his eye on the polls in the states that matter. And you know, I want to get after you you tell me right. where you think the state of the I- impeachment is, whether you think, you know, I think the question that, well, it's the most fun to speculate is, will McConnell knife? So I think I can merge my job of sweeping up all the news of impeachment yeah. with um, some observations about how the polling has worked. Please, um, and the, I'll and, hold your beer. Okay, and, and, and how the <laughs> hearings have affected it. Um, these are non-scientific observations, but I think they do fit the facts pretty well. Is that Before the hearings began, uh, support for impeachment was underwater. Simply by uniting behind impeachment, Democrats managed to pull impeachment above water and slowly thereafter – it eclipsed 50 percent. Um, and we've mm-hmm. been basically in that universe ever since. The hearings barely budged that at all, even though they told this extremely dramatic story, starting with the efforts to oust Marie Ivanovich and ending with the confession of a quid pro quo by Gordon Sondland 
all of that, the however many hours, what was it, 12 witnesses, seven hearings, Mm -hmm. didn't really change the impeachment polling at all with the possible exception of Sondland's testimony. I've seen some uh, indication in the polling averages that since that hearing and then the next day headlines across America with these screaming A1 images that just said, you know, uh, we were following the president's orders. Yes, there was a quid pro quo. uh, Trump was behind it all, that there has been a very slight uptick in support since then, mm-hmm. which suggests that like the power of dramatic revelation. Yeah, there was a kind of uh, remember a million years ago when Ellen DeGeneres came out. Yep, I'm gay was the Times cover. I felt like if Time magazine cover, I felt like there was a yep, there was quid pro quo. Yes. And, you uh, know, and I feel like the lesson if you're if you're Democrats and you're weighing impeachment as a you know, a constitutional and moral imperative, but also a political process that is, you know, that is supposed to have the will of the people behind it and is supposed to um, make it impossible for the the, the supporters of the president to protect him. Mm-hmm. What they spent these impeachment hearings doing, I think, smartly is closing off all potential avenues uh, for Republicans to find defenses of Trump. And some of these defensives have been remarkably weak and very easy to uh, to shut down. But mm-hmm. uh, others have been, uh, you know, a little bit more reasonable sounding or, you know, just the facts needed to come out. Maybe it was just the one call with Zelensky. The quid pro quo was never consummated. So mm-hmm. why does it matter? And the, and the, the process of the public impeachment hearings has been largely about saying, no, you don't get to use that excuse. This excuse, any other excuse, if you're going to vote to not impeach him, if you're going to vote to acquit him, you are going to vote to own the very clearly established series of crimes that that we've uncovered and and put forth. And so, you know, sign on the dotted line. That is the goal is to make Republicans, if they insist on protecting Trump, they they like own the the, uh, fact that 54 percent of the country wants him removed. They own the fact that, what is it, 60 plus percent of the country think that he did something very wrong. Mm -hmm. That's right. I think 70, actually, according to one poll, which is also interesting that people are walking around holding that in their heads. Right. And seemingly there's no indication from any Republicans, except maybe a couple of senators, that they're going to break with with, uh, Trump um, in the final analysis. And so the Mm -hmm. other thought I've had about all this is, with the exception of Sondland possibly causing a small uptick in support for impeachment, as long as Republicans aren't willing to uh, cry uncle, just acknowledge that this is unacceptable behavior, say they've had enough and, okay, we'll deal with President Pence for the next year. Mm -hmm. If they've shown no indication of wanting to hold Trump accountable, I don't see why you wouldn't want this very dramatic public hearing process to continue to uncover other things, which would, A, you know, serve the goal of essentially punishing Republicans for making themselves complicit in all of this wrongdoing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And but B, and this is where Sondland's confession of a quid pro quo maybe Im- improving impeachment polling comes mm. in, is that the impeachment process has this kind of gravitational force that draws bombshell news mm-hmm. into the public sphere. And you don't know, like Democrats don't know that if they if they did another week of these two weeks on things stemming from the Ukraine scandal and then things that are slightly apart from it, like emoluments, that they wouldn't draw 
absolutely stunning facts into the public realm that might further improve impeachment polling. And once you start climbing out of the low 50s, but into the high 50s and low 60s, mm-hmm. then mm-hmm. you put Republicans in a much more difficult position and you can start taking the possibility of removal more seriously. Yeah, I think that's right. I want to ask your opinion of Adam Schiff. I, like everyone, have made no secret, but I I like to think I was early. We had Schiff on almost right after the election. I've made no secret of my admiration for him, and especially his rhetorical prowess. He, in the It's Not Okay speech, Mm -hmm. did the same kind of thing that he has been doing relentlessly in these hearings, which is, and we're not going to see it in Nadler, I'm expecting, but in any case, uh, he's done this thing of saying, here's what happened. We all agree on what happened. I'm talking about the Mueller points back Mm -hmm. then. And he did the best job of just, you know, enumerating them one by one. You know, they accept they accepted this uh, and not paying much attention to that. The Mueller report had no indictments and paying a lot of attention to uh, the Mueller report had turned up all this misconduct on Don Jr.'s part, on Trump's part, on Manafort's part and so on. So you get his list. And then he says, it's not okay." But he says, my colleagues might Mm -hmm. think this is just what you have to do to win. Yep. And I never heard from anyone, Jordan, anyone, that Schiff had any one of those points wrong. And so their silence, because he had begun to box them in, I thought said, you know what? There's a group here that just thinks that that's okay because there's nothing else they can. There's nothing else. None of them are saying, no, Don Jr. didn't welcome those advances from uh, from Russians who wanted Trump elected or, you know, any one of these things. They're not defending Manafort. They're not defending uh, Cohen and the Trump Tower project. And that's just volume one of the report. Right. So that, I thought, was where Schiff telegraphed what he would do in these hearings and that way that he just ruthlessly tells the story at the beginning of each of the hearings, complete with cooking up a drug deal and all, of, all the expressions that he says as if they're like, you know, he holds them a, at, a, at a distance from himself, like they're like poison rags, like the drug deal. Like it is so offensive to me as Adam Schiff to even have to say these words. And then uh, the three amigos, you know, it's just like all so revolting to him in his immaculate legal mind. And then and then dumps all that on Jordan and and Nunes to tell us whether they think it's OK. And you get the feeling that they do think it's OK. So just internally uh, at, at Crooked Media, where I work, yeah. I, I, I commented that I was just stunned by how he's able to put together these closing statements that he couldn't have scripted in advance because he didn't know what the testimony was going to be precisely, but he's quoting from testimony. He's, um, you know, he's, he's wrapping up all of the uh, yeah. information revealed in the hearing in, into a lengthy, seemingly extemporaneous, like no notes uh, in front of him yeah. speech. Yeah, uh, and, he doesn't and, look down. And I work for a couple of former speechwriters, and they are equally, if not more, astonished by his ability to present himself rhetorically so strongly, seemingly like off the cuff. And, you know, John Favreau, who, who's my boss, says like it, it almost makes it makes me uncomfortable because having to put together speeches on such a short time frame was just the most stressful thing to have to do. And he seemingly does it off the top of his head. And I think obviously he's a very bright person um, and, yeah. and and his his experience as a prosecutor uh, make, makes him ideally suited for this kind of environment where mm-hmm. a, a lot of people kind of reflexively describe the Ukraine scandal as being this easy to understand thing. And at some level it is. But the story that Schiff laid out over the course of 
uh, seven hearings was actually fairly complicated. And so it was his job to introduce the nature of the hearing and then at the end of it, sum it all up in a way that helped people who were watching at home who might not know who somebody named Andre Yermak is or whatever, yeah. understand why that's important to the essential corrupt bargain that Trump is being impeached for. And so he is like an ideal messenger for that task. And I agree with you. The, I think it was when Republicans in the House were trying to get him expelled from the Intelligence Committee that he did the, the I don't think it's okay um, yeah. speech that you're talking about. And then when, when they divided the Mueller uh, hearing into judiciary and intelligence, he just had so much better control of the room and ability to mm -hmm. extract information from Robert Mueller himself that it was between those two things that I commented somewhere that Democrats, including Adam Schiff, you know, God bless Jerry Nadler for having wanted to do this. Uh, from a much earlier time while Schiff was opposed. But if they ever mm -hmm. come around to it, it might make sense to have Adam Schiff be the public face of the hearings because he is just better at crystallizing why this is important and why Trump needs to be held accountable for it while also not letting things devolve into spectacle. And he managed to hold that together for yeah. for two weeks. In fact, he got better and better and better because for the first couple days, Republicans tried to um, engage in all these parliamentary, just obnoxious tactics to, yes. to derail. Yeah. The, um, and, it, you know, it had minimal effect for two days. They looked fairly pathetic. Elise Stefanik tried to turn it into a, yes. a sexism thing, and then her opponent raised a million dollars. And then they stopped. It, just after, after the second day of hearings, I think, or maybe it was the third, they yeah. just no more interruptions. And yeah. and it's because they knew that, that they they had tried their best to set Schiff back on his heels and he was just unflappable. And yeah. so very high marks for him. I just remain puzzled as to why he wouldn't want to bring that skill set that he has to bear on other aspects of the scandal that have – you know, there are lots of loose threads hanging out there that, that I mm. personally would like to see tugged on. And, and he seems on board with the idea of just getting this over to the Senate as soon as possible. OK, so w what do you mean? You'd, you'd like to see a broader, more articles of impeachment or a less focused impeachment trial? Or well, are you just uh, uh, hearings? Or you wish he was also running the Judiciary Committee, which well, there's that. I think is going to start hearing uh, testimony next week. Right? You know, I, no offense to Jerry Nadler and, and much credit to him for, for kind of pushing this when he could. But he, in at least the pre-impeachment days when he was trying to um, build support for it, but he had a divided caucus behind him. Mm -hmm. uh, we got kind of rolled. You know, Doug Collins, the ranking member on judiciary, is this bulldog and he's, you know, uh, he's big and loud and, and has some charisma and, and Nadler has none of those things. Um, so there's that. But that's not really what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. um, one, I think it's important for Democrats, like I kind of intimated earlier, to brandish impeachment. Like we are in an impeachment process and mm -hmm. we are not going to stop impeaching the president and dr and drawing his – this miasma of corruption around him into the light until you guys just stop defending him, right? And 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 come around to the view that his conduct is unacceptable. I think that just like ending the impeachment process is is disarming yourself in a way that Donald Trump is not going to do, William Barr is not going to do, uh, Lindsey Graham in the Senate is not going to do. So it's it's an error in that regard. But hmm. you mean even if we get up against the deadline? Well, there's I no, guess yeah, there's no deadline. What is the deadline, right? But I mean, there is. Well, I mean, I mean, okay, forget about it. I'm not even going to invoke that norm because I will sound like some. Uh, I'll sound like some just old-fashioned Pollyanna person of of not butting up against an election year. Of 
course you can go all the way up to the election now. We're in the Wild West of post-Trump times. But it does seem like that's something that Schiff, in concert with Pelosi, might be making their election calculations about. Who knows? That's certainly what I I think it's pretty obvious that there's remains a set of a couple dozen or so House Democrats from frontline districts who were never all that easygoing with the impeachment idea mm-hmm. in the first place. And now they're nervous that it's taking too long. And they don't want to get into election. They want to pass other bills and this and that and the other thing. And, and you know, uh, Nancy Pelosi has always been their agent in this process. And, you know, she embarked on impeachment reluctantly. And I think that the desire to get it out of the House as quickly as possible stems from those concerns. Mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm not saying you need to drag it through to the election. I just think for a couple of important reasons, not ending the public exposition phase of this is important. There's some legal technical reasons why, right? Like there's there's a, a lawsuit in court right now about whether uh, the Democrats in the House have a right to uh, Robert Mueller's grand jury materials. And the ruling on their behalf in the district court uh, was premised entirely on the notion that they're in an impeachment process. So if you draw mm-hmm. that process to a close before the court's rule, it's probably going to end up in the Supreme Court, then you lose the power to – that that case essentially becomes moot. If there's no impeachment mm-hmm. process, then the grand jury materials can't go to the House because there's no judicial thing happening in Congress mm-hmm. for them to have a right to this otherwise secret material. So just on a, a, like a, a level of legal tactics, closing down the impeachment process carries cost. It also, though, occurred to me – and uh, first of all, I'm absolutely with you on that. I just want to raise another question, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, we were told that all Americans should be concerned. And I listened to Robert Mueller when he said that about ongoing election interference in that case by Russians. I mean, by Russians. Mm -hmm. And the, the impeachment hearings themselves give room for Nunes to say over and over and some of the others to say over and over, Biden's Hunter Biden, you know, Burisma, and exactly the the narrative that Trump would have had wanted Zelensky to thread into things in, in a report with Fareed Zakaria on CNN. Right. And it's amazing because in the, the split screen in our mind, we're watching Joe Biden lose his hold on that front runner status. And Trump is interfering. I mean, Trump in concert with all these guys is getting front and center to like just splash mud on Biden. And even if none of that's sticking, even if no one thinks Hunter Biden is corrupt and Biden himself is corrupt, what seems to be happening is this old man who suffered a lot of trauma, especially around his children, seems exhausted. Like this is getting in his head. This is trash talking going on all the time. And where it comes to his kids, Biden just does not seem to have the stamina for it. And I think what we just saw was pretty effective election interference. So I take you to be saying that the impeachment process, uh, one unfortunate side effect is that it creates a platform for Trump to meddle in the primary and the election with these base, like these disinformation tactics. Yes. Um, yes. And I hear you. Um, and, you know, that I, I would just caution that that option remains available to him whatever happens in the House mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. Lindsey Graham is now doing it on his own in the Senate and William Barr will cook up a drug deal of his own if if that's what it takes, right? So so J- Joe Biden's in for a world of hurt no matter what because mm-hmm. these guys have no scruples. Um, and the second thing I would say is that while 
while I agree that these hearings became a platform for Republicans to spread a bunch of viral disinformation about the Bidens and Ukraine in 2016, basically like taking a Russian disinformation op and, and turning it into the language of half the Congress, right? Mm -hmm. Is that that was largely possible because the hearings were so heavily focused on Ukraine. But there were revelations from this, you know, two month uh, interlude between the the whistleblower uh, complaint, the existence of the whistleblower complaint becoming public and the end of the public uh, impeachment process where you could imagine Democrats embarking on in investigative threads that have nothing to do with Ukraine, right? Like early on in this process, we learned that in that 2017 Oval Office meeting with Sergei Kislyak uh, and Sergei Lavrov, the, the Russian diplomats. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That not only did Trump uh, – like leak classified intelligence to them and also try to run down Jim Comey and say, well, now the, the you know, the, the Russia investigation is off my back. But he reportedly, we learned this like in late September, said, you know, I'm OK, essentially, with the fact that you guys interfered in the election and basically gave what they had done his blessing. Mm -hmm. You know, the notes from that meeting got put onto another uh, classified system and they're just sitting there. And I mean, that was an enormous right. bombshell. It was a it was like a, yes. a, a Friday, like the whistleblower had come public. And so all these other officials who were like didn't want to be left off the whistleblower train started leaking yeah. to reporters. And, and that revelation yeah. came out and it's just sitting there. And Adam Schiff would be a great chairman to, to take the lead on an investigation of that. And then you're talking uh, about Russia and you're not talking about Ukraine. Yeah. And, yep, that's and, right. And it's not that Republicans couldn't try to be like, but what about Joe Biden? It's just what about Joe Biden or what about Hunter Biden works in the context of a corrupt quid pro quo around investigations in Ukraine. Less so if you're talking about why did the president give his blessing to Russian interference in the 2016 election? Like that's a question that doesn't give them an easy way to turn it into a whataboutist game with some supposedly equal and opposite democratic sin. There have been two kind of force majeure that sort of disrupt, I think, all of our thinking about two specific stories. One is just, the, you know, that we can leave aside for now. But the mm -hmm. relentless hand-wringing about Hillary Clinton being a bad candidate, which, you know, normalizes the 2016 interference and makes it seem like we're just talking about another also-ran like John McCain or Mitt Romney. It, it, at this point, it doesn't matter. But mm -hmm. The fact that we continue to normal to say, well, the Ameri America was just in the mood for Trump or whatever, or just didn't like Hillary Clinton, it just doesn't read the numbers or read the mood of the country well because of that dramatic disruption that happened that year. The second thing, though, is that when we're trying to figure out why the Mueller report didn't engender an impeachment, which it seemed to be poised to do, sometimes we think that's a shortcoming of the story told in the Mueller report or that people didn't want X, Y, Z. Instead of we had this bomb drop in the form of Bill Barr, who was in a position to just, you know, Bigfoot in and block just and, and obstruct justice there and, and mislead everyone about the results of the report. And he was in a position to do so. Not a Lindsey Graham chirping from Fox News, but, you know, the head of the Department of Justice, the attorney general. Um, 
And, um, and that was astonishing. So, but one thing I think distinguishes, and nobody likes to hate on Barr as much as I do, although I know I have a lot of competition, but is that he demurred when, when Trump asked him to give one of those Comey-like press conferences or the one that he wanted from Comey, clearing him of misconduct in Ukraine, which could have nipped this in the bud for, for rank and file Republicans. And, I don't know if, I don't know, Barr's too busy adventuring wherever he is, trying to get help from oligarchs doing his own drug deals. But, I mean, I think that's another reason to keep this on Ukraine, because Mm. he doesn't have Barr Roy Coning as much as he did with Russia, for whatever reason. Well, okay, but then there's a compromise between what, what I've been arguing for and your instincts, which is that I think the reason Bill Barr didn't go out and, and stick his neck out for Trump on this is that Barr is implicated in at least the cover-up portion of the Ukraine. Yes, that's right. right? That's right. right? Like, there like, was question of he should recuse. That's right. I mean, but, I mean, you know, he got the whistleblower complaint. He put the kibosh on it coming mm-hmm. out. He tried to, mm-hmm. he tried to prevent. He's us mentioned from, in the phone call. Yeah. Exa- he's mentioned in the phone call and he's mentioned in that dramatic opening paragraph of the whistleblower complaint. Like Bill Barr, I don't think reached his ethical limit when Trump asked him to do, to do that for him. I think Bill Barr got dragged in too deep by Donald Trump on this. He doesn't know what his exposure is, you know, one, two, three, four years down the line. Like there, there's a statute of limitations on obstruction that is longer than Bill Barr is going to be attorney general. And yeah. and so he uh, he has, I, I think, decided to be cautious to avoid, um, you know, taking unnecessary personal risk. And if you don't want to if you don't want to venture outside the four corners of the Ukraine scandal, you could mm. you could take a look at the cover up of the Ukraine scandal and the Justice Department's role in that. Yeah. But my, but my, you know, my my thought on 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 impeachment as a as a political tool is that is that it's like a great way to illustrate that the president's corruption is boundless. And the fact that it is difficult to track is actually an asset for Democrats, that it is so uh, ubiquitous that that they can run impeachment hearings for months and not get to the bottom of everything. It, it stops being a, about proving specific crime to the point of being able to take it to a jury, which is what they're doing mm-hmm. with, with the Ukraine scandal and just just creating this cloud of suspicion around Trump himself that the, you cannot trust him in any realm, which is essentially yeah. what Trump did to make uh, to defeat Hillary Clinton is not, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, it was. Emails this, emails that, uh, Clinton Foundation. It, there was no, there was no yeah. actual narrative cohesion to any of it. It was just right. li- like, think, look at all the suspicious sounding things around her. And impeachment allows you to do that in in, in spades. And and yes. you know, to, as to what you said about the Mueller report, mm. one thing I take away from all this is that the public follows its leaders on questions like this. They don't have mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. strong opinions about it. And I and I think a very small percentage of people actually read the Mueller report. Everyone I know who read the report who was uh, agnostic about impeachment came back white-faced and and wondering why it, why Democrats weren't weren't acting and then when they did act support for impeachment went from w- way underwater to above water and yeah. so you they could have uh, yeah did, like you know Bill Barr doesn't make them helpless he goes out and, s- and and spins some lies about what's in the Mueller report and Democrats shrink away from it because they were in- disinclined to want to do impeachment anyway but if they had said this report is shocking and it contains evidence of vast criminal activity and we have to uh, begin an impeachment process to save the country. I 
I could, you know, I can't guarantee you. I strongly believe the exact same thing would have happened. Support for impeachment would have, would have gone yes. to 51 percent. People would have started coming out of the woodwork to yes. admit to things that they had been concealing. And we would have had this ball rolling four months earlier than we did. And maybe the, you know, this is one point that Elizabeth Warren likes to make is that because Democrats didn't act when the, uh, the when Mueller finished his work, he felt liberated to try to uh, to do it again, subvert the next election. Yeah, and that might, and it just might not have had. You know, they they had been it, this had been in the works for a while. But if Democrats launch an impeachment inquiry in in April or or May over the Mueller report, you could imagine them pulling the plug, being like, "This is getting too hot." Just like you know that that's why they pulled the plug on the on the quid pro quo is because Congress started. An investigation of why the aid to Ukraine got held up. When things mm-hmm. get too hot, they actually start criming less. And it's conceivable to me that we would have never reached the point of Trump trying to extort Ukraine if Democrats had taken the contents of the Mueller report seriously and begun an impeachment process then. But all that means is that if they want to tack on new avenues of investigation under the current inquiry, it's not going to hurt them. It's not going to hurt their case. And if they if they feel like they've started to lose the public or the public has started to lose the thread and gotten bored of impeachment or think Mm -hmm. Democrats are abusing whatever, they can bring the process to a close whenever they want. I just don't understand why they're in such a hurry to do it without any indication from Republicans that they're going to honor their oaths. Is it at all possible that I mean, I, I really that I think you're absolutely right that if a leader and we all hoped Mueller would do it, if a leader wraps up something like the Mueller report or this, someone who looks like Bill Barr and just gets to tell us what to think in five sentences, a public opinion can switch very quickly. Mm-hmm. And I think Schiff has done that. He's not quite the sort of rabbinical kind of Solomonic figure that Barr is, but I think he he's done a nice job as part of that. And also. The way people change their minds, we've all become students in some ways of how the people we know change their minds, how they either came to be part of the Fox News cult or how they managed to, in some cases, get free of the Republican Party in the case of everybody's favorite never-Trumpers. And one of the things about the American people this time is they're not going to be, like, walked through facts, right? right? And and, and that's, that's usually the case. My hero, the political philosopher Richard Rorty, said, you know, everybody argued about the welfare state forever on all these tiny details. And then just it suddenly happens. It's like there's a paradigm shift. Right. And there it is in place. And, um, you know, it's like the nobody said they voted for Nixon. You just you you think we're really in the weeds of, you know, parsing Fiona Hill's testimony while people are shouting, lock him up outside a UFC thing. And sooner or later, the water's all flowing downhill and the consensus is he needs to be out. Let's get to McConnell. You know, he's an obstructor by nature, but he's he's got to be a windsock in that role. I and mean, he's got to decide. I mean, Lexington, Kentucky, his home state outside Trump's rally, which he really didn't seem to be able to fill. People were shouting, lock him up. And then the governor became a Democrat. Yep. I just like, how does Moscow Mitch sleep at night thinking about his bluegrass state? It's funny. I think he's probably more... Normally, I think he would, uh, in almost any circumstance, 
feel no fear and just corral his moderates and, and force them to vote the party line like he always does without any compunction. I imagine because of what happened in Kentucky, he feels much more sympathy with their plight. At 51 percent, 54 percent, you're talking maybe Cory Gardner is vulnerable. Maybe Susan Collins mm-hmm. is vulnerable. It's not that many people. Hmm. Um, and so as much as he might be worried about the the politics of this – you know, he can give them a free vote. Their votes aren't actually strictly needed. Um, hmm. And he can, I mean, he would never, but he is, I think, a prisoner of the fact that opposition to impeachment is still 40, whatever, two, 3%. Mm-hmm. And when you, when that starts slipping into the 30s, if it starts slipping into the 30s, it's the phenomenon you were describing of like a bubble bursting all, all of a sudden, right? Yeah. So where we are right now, I think, you know, he, he hasn't really made much of a secret about it. He's like multiple times now suggested that I think we all see that this is not going to end with the president being removed. But there's a few things I can imagine changing that calculus. Not that I think that they're super likely, but but possible. One is further surprise revelations, um, yeah. I think, have the potential to move the numbers, not, you know, radically, uh, but you could imagine a conversation couple weeks from now where instead of being at, at in the low 50s, it's in the high 50s. The other yep. is is a sort of mass politics version of what you're talking about with, with these uh, uh, Trump being increasingly confronted with an opposition calling for him to be locked up is that mm-hmm. is that if on the eve of the big votes in the House on articles of impeachment or during the trial in the Senate, you start seeing tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, a million people marching in Washington and cities around the country, that that can, ha- to A, take a big psychological toll on the people who are covering up for Trump, but yeah. B, convince the broader public that hasn't been paying attention so closely that maybe this really is a big deal and we should, if polled, say that, yeah, we now support impeachment. And this is how governments have fallen the world over in the last couple of years is not through some sort of replication of all the president's men where a bunch of elites investigate behind closed doors, hold public hearings, and then on the basis of overwhelming facts, uh, Republicans tell their own guy that he's got to go. It's that mass politics grabs on to the severity of the misconduct and says, we're free people and we're not going to accept this. And so we don't have the power to remove the president from office now, but you can see in our numbers that if you don't, that there will be punishment down the line. And something like that, I think, Mm -hmm. could move the numbers, again, not radically, but substantially to where you're not just looking at Cory Gardner and you're not just maybe looking at Susan Collins or Lisa Murkowski or whoever you're looking at over 10. And once 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 you're within spitting distance of 67 senators, you got to start asking yourself big questions if you're if you're Mitch McConnell, right? Like maybe it just makes sense to just go to Trump and say you're out and we're going to have Mike Pence. Or maybe it just makes sense to say, all right, you know, there's near un- unanimity in the caucus that he should go. And, and if he makes us vote him out, we will. But it, it, it is going to take a – we're going to have to find ourselves on a different track than we're on if this, I think – rather unlikely hypothetical that I'm tracing yeah. were, were to come to pass because yeah. because proving the case as tightly as Adam Schiff has is not enough. 
It's not enough. enough. Absolutely. What do you think, and not to keep drawing you back to the spectacle of this um, public radicalism, that, you know, impeachment obviously was put in place as an alternative, as we know. Ben Franklin wanted it as an alternative to assassination. So this is the rarefied answer to our ids, you know. Mm. what? So, like, where Trump did shout, lock her up, there are procedures for well, not voting for someone or impeaching them. This is a very civilized procedure, which is the other thing that's interesting about it being seemingly, you know, everyone was so worried that this would look like persecution of the president and that the Republicans are playing it as totally out of bounds when it's been um, really by the book. But I think this thing of the spirit of the country having this really radical streak in it, much more radical than Adam Schiff, um, the one I've been citing, these the protesters all across the country, Minneapolis, Lexington, and now in Baltimore, obviously, not a city that's a big, been a big fan of Trump, still grieving for Elijah Cummings. But um, Melania Trump showed up there to talk about her Be Best or Be Best or whatever it is campaign now with some high schoolers. And she got soundly booed. If the Trumpites, you know, six months ago, a year ago, were having to use apps to find places where the Red Hats would feel at home to shop or date or whatever, and having their own dating app, and Sarah Sanders and everyone was getting harassed in restaurants. I mean, the population itself seems to be putting the squeeze on Trump. Yeah. That can't feel good to people like Susan Collins. The handful of Republican senators that are vulnerable are in a horrible political bind for just this reason is that is that, you know, vote against the president and he can end your career by denying you Republican support and uh, vote for him. And uh, this nascent rage about the the fact that Trump needs to be removed from office uh, means that people are going to show up and vote for your opponent. And so, you know, there's it's a it's a catch twenty two for all of them, and I am you know very curious to see how the election plays out in a world where they where Republicans acquit Trump, and depending on you know the the final vote tally, some of the moderates vote to acquit and some vote to uh, convict, and and we get to kind of see how that affects their performance in the election. Yeah, I think that the reason that there's these acts of public protest, the Trump mm-hmm. being booed at sporting events and Melania mm-hmm. being booed at her be best thing and locker up chants have coincided with the the impeachment fight is in, in part just because Democrats have have led, they've unified. And so a lot of people now support impeachment. And that means that, that the notion that Trump should not be in power is very prevalent and people are acting on that. But the mm-hmm. specific scandal, unlike if they were impeaching him for the emoluments clause or obstruction of justice, is one, and this is why we launched Rubicon, is yeah. it, it's a scandal about the president, yes, corrupting foreign policy, yes, committing bribery or however you want to define his high crime. But the uh, objective was to deny us who are supposed to be free people a fair election. And yeah. and so the idea that impeachment is supposed to be this sort of safety valve, this pressure release valve to depose a president who's ignited the the like darker passions of, of the public through through misconduct, uh, I think is very real. But in this case, the stakes are higher than usual because if he's not removed, if he's not uh, convicted in the Senate, he is going to be at the apex of his criminality. He's going to feel mm-hmm. he's going to feel as emboldened as ever. To, hmm. to commit further corrupt acts, including acts designed to deny the public a free and fair election. And so I would expect both, you know, there to be more public displays of 
animosity towards the president in the run-up to the impeachment votes, but also that if and when he's acquitted for the notion that he's been acquitted for trying to cheat in his own reelection campaign to become a regular drumbeat. I mean, I will beat that drum because it's true. And mm-hmm. I think that that is going to keep a large, healthy swath of the of the public at a sort of pitched level of anger and distrust from now mm-hmm. until November. And, you know, God help us if the election is close or anything like that, because after what he tried to do with Ukraine, if he mm-hmm. tries to do the same thing but on another channel and then he wins an electoral college majority but loses the popular vote by a slim margin again just like he did in 2016 mm-hmm. there's going to be an enormous crisis of legitimacy in this country and who knows where we go from there yeah that, that's that's absolutely right i want to be able to end on that beautifully low note it's just like <laughs> let's try nice, something a little happier. somber moment but um but but i have actually maybe two more sort of uh, sort of in the weeds questions sure and then we'll try to think of something to see us into the holiday fiona hill go to our happy place assassin right <laughs> well the people's princess as i call her <laughs> since i'm watching the crown and we're about to get to diana so the people's princess fiona hill she i thought on this question of russian interference and Kremlin activity, which is a little bit of a third rail because, as you, as you and I both know, we've probably both hosted guests that have that maximalist view of Kremlin antics that can make you think that, you know, I've heard it said even impeachment gets Putin what he wants for Christmas because it's we're more fractious. So leaving out that we probably all have uh, Moscow chips in our brains by now, so nothing we say is not reproducing uh, Putin's disinformation campaigns. Leaving that aside, I really, really liked the way Fiona Hill pushed back on Adam Schiff in very interesting ways. When he was th- he was talking about legitimacy, this very question you just you just raised, and he said, you know, he wanted to cast aspersions on the illegitimacy as he sees it of Trump, who got Russian assistance to win the election, and she wouldn't say this is a Trump question. She said the same would be true if Hillary had been elected, that Putin would, you know, he obviously wanted to hurt her mandate at the very least and and call into question our whole system, this mm. whole reckoning that we're having. Um, and um, and I think that's what led, you know, Schiff didn't get his perfect moment like right. he, in that in that exchange. And it wrangled him a little bit so that later he said, you're more diplomatic than I am which was a nice way of playing it. You know, yeah. I'm a little hot-headed, but you you and I share the same views, but and, but you're just a little more careful how you say it, but we're saying the same thing. Right. Um, they weren't quite saying the same thing. Do you keep in your head a Putin just got what he wanted? That kind of Malcolm Nance thing. No. Okay. So here's how I think about this whole question, right? I have believed since long before uh, Robert Mueller was appointed special counsel that A career government official is very unlikely to save us from this situation. Mm -hmm. And that includes Fiona Hill. And Fiona Mm -hmm. Hill is – Well, careful, careful. You're talking about the people's princess. Look, she – but look, I'm going going to get into how she and her testimony are helpful to the politics that might save us from this. But the – you know, as a bureaucrat or now former bureaucrat in the national security sphere, it is very important and right that she think about how a Russian disinformation operation affects the way we conduct politics here and how to prevent that from creating 
or harming national cohesion to such a dramatic extent mm -hmm. that the country ceases to function. Mm -hmm. Like that's her job is to protect the country from that kind of thing. And mm -hmm. in that regard, an impeachment process is, um, you know, uh, uh, like it, it has a real silver lining for for the forces in the world that want to see the United States fracture. But what the, those forces, I the way I see it, what they're trying to uh, like infect America with is um, just the uh, imp impossibility of, of truth ever um, being the way free people make decisions together. Mm -hmm. And so she is not going to say that a president who got elected, who achieved high office through corrupt means that she ended up working for, right, uh, mm -hmm. is – has questions of legitimacy around him, both because she worked for him, but also because it's not her job to to sow a sense of the illegitimacy of the American government. Quite the opposite, right? Mm -hmm. um, yes. But but Adam Schiff's job should be to tell the truth, and the mm -hmm. truth is that in multiple ways Donald Trump did achieve power uh, through corrupt means, and so there should be at least an asterisk next to his presidency. And we as uh, as citizens should be uh, furious that he's been allowed to sort of rend the country and loot it and and affect jurisprudence for the next 30 years, et cetera, mm -hmm. on the heels of having broken the law and and, uh, you know, at least co cooperated with a, uh, a foreign criminal sabotage scheme to become president in the first place. And mm -hmm. um, and so I'm not surprised that she didn't give him, uh, you know, the. Like, like the check mark for for basically raising that uh, uh, question or that inference mm -hmm. about about Trump himself. Like mm -hmm. like she she, it's not in her in her intellectual DNA to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but but um, that doesn't mean that like I th you know she, she still shared a bunch of very important facts that Adam Schiff can bring to try to end this presidency before. Uh, it completes its term, but that should be done on the basis of of what's true about Trump and the idea that that Democrats would tamp down on their willingness to confront Trump and be honest about what kind of man and leader he is in order to uh, tamp down on uh, polarization of the country and the way we're we're divided. Uh, I think that's what uh, what gives. You know the forces of disinformation and autocracy. What they want is to cow freedom-loving liberal people who care about the truth into submission, so that they don't contest those forces. And um, so, I you know, I I I would have loved it if if Fiona Hill had had told Adam Schiff, "You're right. You know, any president who does try to seek re-election." By committing bribery and corrupting foreign policy in order to cheat in the election, should have questions of legitimacy around him. Like I would have loved if she had said something like that. I'm not surprised she didn't. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think that she gave Adam Schiff a, a wealth of damning testimony to work with to, in, you know, maximize the pain on the people who want to cover for the president. Mm -hmm. um, but it would be, I mean, it would be super disappointing and demoralizing from my perspective if he bit on that notion that, whoa, impeachment really is giving Putin what he wants. I think it's just the opposite. Okay, that I really like to hear. <laughs> Finally, I want you to do some bookmaking because you have to. 
don't decline, which is we haven't brought up Tony Schwartz, my old boss, who wrote The Art of the Deal with Donald Trump, has said from the beginning he thinks Trump will do what he did at Trump Stakes and all his other failed ventures, which is resign and somehow call it a victory or not talk about it, just like Trump Foundation is over. Um, do you think there's any chance that even absent pressure in his own party like Nixon got, that Trump might might resign uh, and, you know, move to Riyadh or, or, or Moscow or wherever um, and uh, and somehow call it, I don't know what, um, that, you know, little signs like his emergency health appointment or the fact that the, the, the White House was unaccountably, if briefly, on lockdown that suggests that maybe even he can't handle being booed this much. So from my perspective on the ground as a reporter, the White House goes on lockdown. Congress goes on lockdown every few weeks, and it's usually nothing. Okay. My read on Trump's personality, his narcissism, his, uh, his you know, he has this um, power of positive thinking thing that kind of yeah. is incompatible with the notion that he'd end up in this defeatist mindset where he was destined to lose or be removed from office or might face criminal, you know, he just, he, he expels all of those doubts from his mind and everything yeah. that he does yeah. in part, you know, in part to, uh, to get what he wants in the end. And in part, because I think his ego won't let him accept his own vulnerabilities. So I could, you know, I could imagine a real health crisis causing him to not be president anymore in the way that we're all human. You came up against something very terrifying there. You're speculating the little bit of a thumb on the scale about the president's health, and you're not the first person to do it. Um, I mean, he's a, he's, you know, he's a, I know, of course, he's a, of course. And, and this is true of multiple of the uh, multiple Democratic candidates at this point, too, is like the actuarial tables aren't super on their side. And yeah. Um, and yep. so that's so set, set aside a, like a genuine health scare that makes it impossible for him to campaign or something like that yep. without, without yep. going to the darkest possible place. Okay. I, my read on his psyche is that even if he came out on the other side of impeachment um, badly damaged and then it was the general election season and he was down – uh, consistently far more than he was to Hillary Clinton. We've sort of retconned ourselves into believing that Hillary Clinton had these enormous leads all through the election. But for the most part, they were fairly terrifyingly narrow the whole time. Hmm. Uh, and so if that's not the case in 2020 and he's losing in the polls by 11 percent, I still think that what he does is he he fights it out to election day. He loses. He refuses to accept the legitimacy of his loss, though I, you know, I imagine he doesn't refuse to concede that he won't be president anymore. He just it's rigged and they stole it from me and blah, blah, blah. And then he, you know, sabotages the transition. He refuses to show up for the inauguration. That's the Donald Trump. I think I've come to understand over the years is mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. is maximal petulance about this stuff. And like at no point would he just surrender and try to pretend that he wasn't by concocting some sort of excuse that nobody believed. Yeah. He'll save the excuses for when it's over and he hasn't succeeded. That's my hunch. Okay. But like, you know, if, if I'm proven wrong, then I'll come back on Trumpcast. You can say I told you so. And then we can drink seven <laughs> bottles of champagne. I mean, what we're going to do if he gets reelected is a whole other problem. But OK, you got it. Even the prospect of drinking is celebratory anything is good right now. My guest has been Brian Boitler. He's the editor in chief of Crooked Media and host of the podcast Rubicon. Have a great Thanksgiving, Brian. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Virginia. 
That's it for today's show. What do you think? Come to Twitter. You can speculate about the president's declining health. We don't mind. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And come on, why stop there? In the spirit of Thanksgiving, go over to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus and give Slate some thanks by becoming a Slate Plus member. Today is the day. Plus members get all of Slate's podcasts ad-free for only $35 for the first year. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast Plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan and engineered by Merritt Jacob. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Happy Thanksgiving and thanks for listening to Trumpcast.